0: History, where we bring you some weird comics history every week on the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast feed. Uh, you can find Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast through iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, maybe other places that I don't know about. And we show up every Sunday morning. Uh, usually, we didn't show up last week, but that was my fault. But, we, you know, usually we intend to show up every Sunday morning, so. If you're subscribed to that podcast, we should show up with your normal subscription. Um, this is part two of the history of Charlton Comics. Uh, this was a uh, kind of the fourth or fifth level publisher in uh, after DC, Marvel, Gold Key, and who knows, Harvey. Depending on the era, right? Yeah. Um, Gold Key probably at times. Who knows? Um, So we're going into part two now, which would be the uh, sort of the Bronze Age of Charlton. But first, we'll do a little recap uh, for those of you that missed the first episode. Uh, Charlton began in 1935 as a partnership between John Santangelo Sr. and Ed Levy to produce song lyric magazines, including Hit Parader, which uh, published right up until the end of Charlton. In my youth, I remember seeing it on the stands. Angelo acquired a plot of land in Derby, Connecticut, and over time buys printing presses, color separation facility, and a plate engraving operation, an in-house distribution facility, and even require, acquires a nearby paper mill. So here we go, he has one-stop sh- shop. This was what really set Charlton apart from the other publishers at the time. Everything was in-house. Uh, I didn't mention it here, but there was also editorial and art facilities in-house, but that was just a matter of giving them a room in the oh, factory. Nice. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, I didn't. we didn't get into the uh, bowling alley thing, but oh well. <laughs> Begin pub- he began publishing Kitty Comics in 1944, beginning with a comic called Yellow Jacket that was packaged by Al Fago. And in 1951, they began Charlton Comics proper, and produced comics in accord with the marketplace of the time, which was mostly horror, westerns, romance were the big uh, popular ones back then continued publishing comics through the 1950s despite the real contraction of the industry, which was partly due to the Comics Code Authority that we covered in five parts uh, when we first started this separate podcast, uh, apart from the uh, Weird Science main podcast. Uh, A company reorganization in 1966 split the office into a music magazine's division and a comics division, and editorial assistant Dick Giordano became the comics editor, and he initiated the Action Heroes line, which included Blue Beetle, The Question, and Captain Adam, among several others. If you want to know more, listen to the first episode. I'm telling you, we have a lot of information in that one. Yeah. Uh, cultivated a lot of great new talent, like Danny O'Neill, Steve Skates, and uh, the mainstay Joe Gill, who wrote almost everything at Charlton. And he took these guys with him when they, hi- when they were hired by DC when uh, Dick Giordano was hired by DC as part of the editorial staff in 68, and now that brings us into part two of our story.
1: Yes, Giordano, he leaves, like you said, in 1968, and when he does, a staff artist by the name of Sal Gentile becomes the comics editor for Charlton, and uh, pretty much mishandled the uh, action heroes line, ran into the ground. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that was it.
1: But luckily enough, just at that time, they got some new properties. The uh, King Features syndication rights came into uh, Charlton. This is uh, this is like the newspaper strips: Popeye, Bob Blondie, uh, Beetle Bailey, the Phantom, stuff like that. They yeah. got the syndication rights to them. In addition, the uh, Hanna Barbera license came through. So uh, you know they got uh, Hanna Barbera was being handled by uh, Screen Gems uh, for their merchandising and. Uh, Charlton got a hold of Yogi Bear, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, uh, eventually Scooby-Doo, and and lots more. And uh, these huge acquisitions helped Charlton's sales team make inroads at the newsstands and at the retail outlet level with uh, nationally recognized characters. Uh, You know, they have people that are instantly recognizable instead of these yeah kind of third or fourth
0: tier superheroes well, what the hell's a blue beetle you know yes, it's all, also it's important to say that all this stuff was new though it wasn't just uh reprinting old strips or yeah. you know repurposing this was but all they, new information they were old. creating all this stuff brand new in-house
1: yeah and then we have a fellow by the name of george wildman he comes in uh he was born january 31st 1927 in waterbury Connecticut. Uh, was born in Waterbury, but grew up in Watertown, so maybe he got, maybe the town got upgraded or downgraded.
0: I don't know, yeah. Maybe yeah. they're two different places. <laughs> Who the know. hell knows? <laughs> uh,
1: he served in the Navy for both both uh, World War II and the Korean War. Uh, when he returned, he, in, he attended the, the Payer College of Art. He became a commercial artist and even had his own ad agency. He's notable for being Charlton's first freelance talent. Um, when they landed the King Features license, uh, Wildman realized a lifelong dream by submitting his first work to King Features, and he was selected as the uh, Popeye comic guy. He was the guy who was doing Popeye. And uh, he worked closely with the uh, comic strip artist, a uh, guy by the name of Bud... Uh, is it Sagendorf? S- I always Sagendorf? pronounce it
0: Sagendorf, but it's really, I, as usual, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, he, he, Sagendorf. I, 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 if you see his work, he drew... Uh, at the same time that he was doing um, a comic called Dirty Duck for National Lampoon, he has a very unusual hmm. style. But, you know, um, I, I thought it was important to say here that Wildman wasn't given the Popeye assignment, that he, he you know, tried out for it and he yep. got it outright from King Features. It wasn't just sort of parceled out by Charlton.
1: Yeah, he, he earned it. Yeah. Um, now, in 1970, he took a job as uh, Sal Gentile's assistant editor, uh, he had lost a couple of clients in his uh, ad agency and uh, moved to the West Coast. Uh, he got married to a uh, woman by the name of Gertrude Trudy Steinley, yep. uh, also a native of Waterbury, Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he had an operation for a devi- deviated septum. Uh, you know, point is, you know, he, he needed he needed stable work. Yeah, to, uh, th- to get by. Exactly. Um uh, between being the assistant editor and a freelance and freelancing his Popeye work. Uh, George was able to make a living. Uh, he he eventually became the comics editor in 1972, and he uh, is the one behind the fam- you know the famous the more recognizable Charlton logo that bullseye.
0: Yeah, I was surprised I, it happened so late. It's so it's, I know it. That's what that's what you think of or what I think of when when I think of Charlton, and it it really came at the tail end of their existence. You know, it didn't. You know, all those other <laughs> comics were made, and they had none of that.
1: Yeah, there's only a few more years of original stuff coming out, and it's. It's just now getting their logo. Yeah. Um, now Sal Gentile moved on. Uh, he was his health was failing, and uh, and you know we don't we don't really know a whole lot else. Yeah. Uh, he uh, really liked Charlton's operation. Uh, this is a uh, back to uh, to uh, George, he, Yeah. Yeah. He was a big fan of the operation. He liked everything in house. He was a big fan of Santangelo Senior as well. Who uh, he we called uh, the old man. He, uh, he would compare him to Henry Ford in so far as production, assembly, and, and bottom line. Uh, he was uh, quoted as saying of Sant'Angelo if you dropped him in the desert, he'd have six guys working for him in three days. <laughs> so uh, Sant'Angelo knew, uh, he knew how to, he, he had the talent to talk to talent.
0: Yeah, he had the gift to gab, as they say. <laughs> yes. And
1: uh, George Wildman, you know, he, he couldn't do it alone, so he needed an assistant too. And uh, who do we get now?
0: Enter Nicola cuddy born October 29, 1944, in Brooklyn, New York. His father was a photo developer for Time and Life magazines. His life in Brooklyn was sort of rough and tumble. He was always getting into fistfights with neighborhood gangs. That was sort of uh, life in post-war America. Another thing we talked about before, and you know, I think it's interesting that he's that uh, cuddy is sort of a product of that. Post-war comics, crazy world. You know, this is, we're starting to see that generation is finally getting old enough to actually uh, have an impact on, on comics. Yep. Yeah, uh, Cuddy was the only Italian living in a building of Jews across the street. The rival building was all Italian, and they went to the same church as Cuddy, so he was able to sort of start a, start a piece But another thing he remembered was he would also tell stories to sort of uh, appease all the slightly older kids, uh, mainly horror stories. But he had a whole bunch of sci. He was a big fan of sci-fi. Uh, from even from being a little kid in 1957 his family moved to Valley Stream Long Island and then he went to about three years of college to be an engineer this I assume would have been around 63, 64 if you know the age is correct he dropped out and joined the military and he served as a military cop until sometime in the mid 60's uh, he met M- Wally Wood through a portfolio p- procured at one of Phil Sueling's conventions. I think this must have been one of the very first con- conventions, Chris, right? I mean, Probably. this is this like is way it, early. This has to be 65, 66, maybe? Yeah. I mean, this is not, this is the conventions you hear about that were in the hallway yeah. of, of the hotel. They didn't They didn't get a ballroom, they got the hallway. And um, it's interesting,
1: this uh, portfolio he got, ha- had, had Wally Wood's contact information on the back. How strange is that?
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, I think that's how small it was. I think there was probably yeah. like 20 guys there. So, you know, having your card there to get work made sense. I mean, now imagine finding, you know, Neil Adams' phone number. Yes. At the convention, it would be, you know, he would change his phone number very rapidly. It would become very a big quick. problem. Uh, but obviously Wally Wood like to cut of his jib because he became Wally Wood's assistant for a whopping $20 a week, which staggering. <laughs> still, even in, even in 1966 or whatever it was, was crap money. Um, Wood he did live on the island, and he had a studio in Manhattan, which I think also made it very the arrangement convenient for sure. both of them. Uh, Cuddy lived with his parents still in Valley Stream, so I I don't know exactly what happened, but I assume there was some kind of collusion there. Um, he wrote a story called "Grub" that was published in Warren Publications' Creepy Magazine in the mid '60s. That was his first published work ever, uh, and then he also had a. Comic strip uh, or a comic called Moonchild that was published by the San Francisco Comic Book Company. This was an underground outfit, naturally, as you can tell by the name. That was done in black and white in '68. That ran for seven issues. It had originally been slated for Wally Wood's uh, sort of independent zine, Wits End. Yeah. But by the time um, Cuddy was done with one issue, wood had already sold it to he sold it to pearson bill pearson who will come up later in the in the story it's very interesting so and bill pearson rejected it he wouldn't print it he thought it was crap yeah, but uh it's it. funny yeah. they they would they would forge a friendship after that so george wildman hiled him hired him as an assistant editor at charlton for 200 dollars a week 10 times increase from yeah. wood's 20 bucks so he moved from his parents in valley Stream into an apartment in connecticut and uh, besides being a, the assistant editor, which, as we know, meant he was, uh, you know, proofreading and making art changes, and you know, running down to the color separators and doing a lot of things that editors don't normally do in most companies. He also he did a lot of the ops work. Yeah, exactly. He did a lot of production stuff. That uh, it's 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 strange that uh, the the many hats he had to wear here. uh, But he also wrote for Charlton, as well as writing for Warren, by the way, the entire time. He wrote for Warren all the way up until the end of uh, Warren Publications. But he provided horror and fantasy scripts, over 200 in his time at Charlton. He provided to them probably also uh, sci-fi, if he could jam it in. And as we'll learn later, he did write some superheroes. He worked there until 1976. So, you know, here's this guy, Nick Cuddy. He's 15 years George Wildman's Jr., and he was, like, just much more connected to the world of comics. Uh, for one thing, he was from New York. I think that had a lot to do with it, and that's where the conventions were going to be. That's where the, most of the publishers Good. were. Yeah. yeah, most of the talent. You know, even the people that freelanced for uh, Charlton were largely from New York, you know, and, and, they, and they had that office down there one day a week specifically for that. So I think that had a lot to do with it. But plus, being younger, he just sort of was a, a contemporary with a lot of the guys that were making inroads into the industry so he was just much more in touch and, he, and from having worked with Wood, of course uh, I know he told the story about how he met Steve Ditko there and he was, like, floored but they were just, you know, just hanging out together because they were, you know, Ditko and Wood were contemporaries yep. so uh, so he had a lot of connections and he, and he kind of understood comics to some extent uh, maybe more than George Wildman but still, even with all that being said Uh, Cuddy and Wildman both say that it was George Wildman's idea to revive the superheroes and have another go at it. And so he did, but first we're going to talk about something else really, kind of a side thing.
1: Yes, this is a a fanzine that was created around the time called Charlton Bullseye. It was published by a group of guys called the CPL Gang. Uh, They were uh, fans. They were comic fans. The CPL stands for Contemporary Pictorial Literature. And there's some uh, very uh, recognizable names in this uh, this lineup here. Uh, This was founded by uh, Roger Stern and Bob Layton. It also included uh, Roger Slifer,
0: Slifer, I think.
1: Slifer, yeah, I got to bobbled that one. (laughs) Uh, Duffy Voland, Tony Isabella, Don Mates, Michael Uslan, Stephen Grant, and John Byrne.
0: Michael Uslan, who wrote a lot for DC, but also, didn't he also write the script for Batman 89? The uh, movie, I believe he did. I think he
1: did. Yeah, yeah. he's also he's he's one of like the uh, the historians now. He's,
0: yeah, uh, now he is he's, like a expert
1: yeah, he's often cited. and he also uh, he was helpful in the Stan Lee Just Imagine uh, run uh, over in DC. All
0: right, well, you can't win them all. <laughs> uh,
1: now, uh, issues nine and ten of uh, of the contemporary pictorial literature was printed as the uh, Charlton Portfolio, which was uh, testing the waters for uh, this kind of fanzine here. Also included something they call the Charlton Manifesto, which was written by George Wildman. It declared that Charlton is no longer a quote-unquote closed shop, and it's looking for new talent and re-entering the superhero field. Yeah. Also, it included the unpublished Blue Beetle number 6.
0: I mean, I think Wildman was really throwing down the gauntlet there. You know, he was basically saying this, you know, this is a new dawn of a new day where we're connecting with the fans more closely in ways that we hadn't before. And uh, I think this this could be seen as the real beginning of the superhero or reemergence of the superhero line.
1: Yeah, because uh, you know Charlton was, yeah, uh, you know, the, the fanzines were kind of the uh, they were the thing of the day. You know, they uh, Charlton did this to compete with other you know kind of sort of in house fanzines. You mm-hmm. had like, like Marvel had Foom F O O M, which was uh, Friends of Old Marvel. Uh, DC had the Amazing World of DC Comics, uh, which
0: is a kind of self explanatory title. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, Charlton they went ahead and they supported the CPL gang and you know, formed a little bit of an alliance. Gave them access to unpublished and original material so made it made it a special book uh now the original run only went five issues uh, the first one 1975 was the uh, featured the first half of an unpublished captain adam story which would have appeared in issue number 90 uh that uh, had finishes by john byrne uh, issue two also 75 was a, there was a second half of another unpublished uh, captain adam story uh, issue 3, 1975, it's a Kung Fu issue. Uh, it, um, it, with, uh, it included an unpublished uh, story called Wrong Country by San Ho Kim, which was intended for a comic called Gang.
0: Which we'll, we'll talk which we'll about in a minute. minute. <laughs> but yeah, they kind of blew their wad in 75, I don't know why.
1: <laughs> <laughs> issue 4 came out in March 76, featured a new E-Man story, and we'll get the E-Man in a little while. And uh, the first half of an unpublished Uh, Doomsday plus one story which would have been the final issue of that and we'll get to that one shortly too. Uh, issue five, July, nineteen seventy-six. So this was a quarterly deal, uh, uh, from from what it looks.
0: Like. I would, I, I think, a quarterly if they could, you know. If they at, could get it. Out. If they could get it out. Yeah, at best. Cause, yeah,
1: because yeah, I'm guessing they weren't they weren't really breaking the bank with this one, no. or bringing in the bank. Not at all. Uh, that final issue, uh, there was a new uh, question story by Alex. Toth, uh, is it Toth or Toth?
0: I always said Toth, but I'm toth wrong a lot of the, the time. Do tough, yeah.
1: Uh, and a second half of an unpublished that 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 unpublished Doomsday Plus One storyline. And uh, the CPL gang they disbanded in 1976 because a lot of them had very successful comic book careers <laughs> yep. they were about to enter. Yeah, uh, now as a show of commitment to the you know the potential re emergence of the superheroes, there was an issue of Ghost Manor, it was number 21 from November 1974 by Nick, uh, Nick Cuddy and uh, Steve Ditko. This issue featured a parade that had cameos by E-Man, Blue Beetle and Captain Atom. So uh, letting letting the people know that these characters were still somewhere.
0: Yeah, and you know, pulling going back to Giordano's action hero line as well, not just, you know, yeah. talking about the new characters that were created, so they were kind of making it all incorporate incorporating everything into it. So uh mm-hmm. this definitely, you know, it, it throughout all of this, I really got the impression that Wildman was really in into this. Yeah, he so, had an
1: intrinsic desire to yeah. make this work.
0: So I, uh, I I really I really got a, a big appreciation for the guy reading about this. I really dug him. But uh, they did make a couple of new characters for Charlton. Um I'm going to talk about one of them right now. Joe Gill and Will, and Warren Settler created Yang. This was a comic that lasted for 13 issues.
1: That's a so, long time.
0: It really is. Uh, you know, <laughs> but it went from November 73 to 76. I think the reason it went so long was it was derived almost totally from that Kung Fu TV show that was very popular starring David Carradine. David Carradine? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it was... I, I didn't look at it, but... Everything it says, it basically sounds like the same thing. This is a description from Don Markstein's Toonpedia, and I'll have the website in the show notes with the rest of our source material. Uh, Yang was originally Chung Hui, the son of Cheng, Cheng Wan, a Chinese Mandarin whose life had been devoted to opposing evil and injustice. The old man was murdered by his arch enemy, Chao Ku, a slave trader whom he opposed on many occasions. With his dying breath... Cheng Wan charged his son with being Yang, the good side of the familiar uh, yin-yang image, symbolizing dichotomies, particularly life-affirming good opposed to life-denying evil. But Yang was betrayed by Yin Li, Chao Ku's beautiful and deadly daughter and sold into slavery to the captain of a ship bound for america in order to work on actually the railroad in the uh, mid-19th century which mm-hmm. was a thing that actually did happen to chinese uh people at the time so a little hi- real history in there and then he fights for justice in the old west why not that sounds true he yeah, got kung fu and uh you know he can make it happen and cowboys the cow kung fu and cowboys it's a ma- match made in heaven apparently it was though because this comic actually had a spin-off that lasted for six issues, <laughs> called The House of Yang. This was from July 1975 to June 1976. This was by Joe Gill and Sanho Kim. And this told the story of Yang's cousin. This is also from Toonpedia. Uh, Yang's cousin, son Yang inheriting Chung Yang's estate, a Chun, Chung Yuan's estate and also trying to claim it was Eva Ku yun Lee's half-sister whom he defeated, but who returned to try for it again and again and I assume only five times because there was only six issues yes, yeah, maybe maybe he was successful last time, so I mean it's a pretty crazy complex story for a uh, you know, a, a comic that they that I you know, they make it sound like they crapped it out, but uh, yeah basically yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I got a, I got a kick out of the, the historical connection to the uh, railroad
1: sure sure um we uh we mentioned e-man a little earlier uh nick cuddy and uh, joe staten created e-man uh the first issue appeared in october 1973 it was covered in uh, october 1973 right yeah he was a being of pure energy inspired by both plastic man because he could become anything and albert einstein he had a he had a stylized e equals mc squared on his costume this was a primarily a humor magazine with e e-man routinely wisecracking with his girlfriend Nova Kane. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joe Staten designed the costume with the request that there be no cape. Uh, Cuddy picked orange and yellow colors for the costume just to to make him look a little bit different from the, you know, the main guys, uh, the blues and the reds in uh, Marvel and DC. Mm -hmm. Now, this one, uh, a shortage uh, uh, caused by a Canadian paper mill strike caused a six-month delay between issues two and three. Uh, 2 came out December 1973 uh, 3 was June 1974 these were bi-monthly books
0: Yeah uh, that's what they all of these comics were bi-monthly yeah, everything so, was. so some of these some of these uh, dates might seem weird when you look at the years but you have to remember they only had 6 issues a year if they were you know doing yeah. doing well if they were
1: on time yeah, yeah. <laughs> now uh, this uh, series ran 10 issues uh, every issue except for number 8 had backups uh, Sant'Angelo Jr., who is now running the day-to-day, and Wildman kept it alive as long as they could out of respect and, and perhaps, uh, you know, uh, affection for uh, Cuddy. Now, mm-hmm. uh, the backups included, uh, we have The Dragon Killer by Joe Gill. Uh, <laughs> as
0: we've <called laughs> Pretty much and, if you're not sure who, who wrote something, yeah, if, if all, it's yeah, probably it going to be Joe Gill. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so this was uh, Joe Gill and artist Wayne Howard. This appeared in issue number three, which features uh, Travis, a time-traveling youngster. Uh, Killjoy, written and illustrated by Steve Ditko, appeared in issues two and four.
0: Uh, I I heard that that was sort of a, you know, proto-Mr. A. It was sort of you know, leading more towards the character that would become Mr. A, but I've never seen it before. I definitely That's would be curious. Named right then. Isn't I it? know, right? Exactly. <laughs> It'd be more Killjoy.
1: Yeah. Uh, Liberty Bell, uh, by uh, Joe Gill and Steve Ditko, was featured in issue five. Artist uh, Mike Fosberg and Dan Atkins uh, worked on the character's development, but they were later on replaced by Ditko. And uh, in issues six, seven, nine, and ten, we had the Raj 2000 backup. Which was written by Cuddy with uh, artist our our old pal John Byrne making his professional comics debut.
0: And this was definitely the most popular one. This would be featured on one of the covers to yeah that Charlton Bullseye fanzine. But we talked about this in our John and Byrne episode, bio. so you can go back and check that out.
1: And uh, he man, he would uh, he would enjoy a small resurgence uh, via independent publisher First Comics in the mid '80s. He had added he had a 25 issue run. Uh, a little bit later on, uh, he went to Comico. Uh, had a three-issue miniseries and a special. I think more might have been planned for that, but Comico went out of business, like so many did around that time.
0: Yeah, that was 1990, so it was all about to end, folks.
1: (laughs) And uh, much later on, he received a one-shot by Digital Webbing Press. That was 2006. And I I have... Probably half that first comics run, and I, I tried reading a little bit of it, and it just, it seems angry.
0: <laughs> it oh, seems really? Like a very angry. Well, look look book. at I the year, finished. you know, in the mid 80s, they were probably trying yeah. to make a gritty E Man, you know, just like <laughs> a, a realistic E Man, which I, I don't know if the world needs or wants such a thing.
1: It seemed almost politically charged. It was, ugh.
0: to, to but, be honest, uh, the original E Man comics, uh, you know, I, I looked through a couple of them online, and they look like a lot of fun. Yeah. You know oh, they, yeah. they don't they don't look like they're you know uh, the best comics around or anything you know and so some of the pages don't end on a very uh, page turning cliffhanger for example <laughs> and stuff like that but it, it was a little, it was a fun looked like a fun time and definitely sure. really well drawn by Staten. absolutely
1: uh, now Staten, he was born a July, uh, sorry, January nineteenth nineteen forty eight in North Carolina but he grew up in Tennessee uh, he broke into the industry in nineteen seventy one via Charlton. Co- like we said, co-created uh, *E-Man* with Nick Cuddy. Uh, he was actually credited with started the starting the uh, British comics invasion, which we covered way back. Yeah. Uh, on the uh, oh. on our segment.
0: That's like the <laughs> back- second or third segment that we did. I can't I think remember.
1: Think so? Probably early May. Yeah. Um, and we'll, I'm sure you know we're going to only touch on him briefly because I'm sure that he'll come up. He'll come up probably a lot more as we you know continue
0: oh yeah he's he's courses his way throughout comics uh, he's pretty a much stay. from this point on you know but um i i just really wanted to i think we both just wanted to we're talking about so many people just give you a little bit of background on these guys but not give yep. you full bios because this is not really about them so much as it's about uh yeah. you know the wildman era uh, John Byrne, of course, we did a whole episode on him uh, two episodes ago. Uh, he was born July 6, 1950, in the United Kingdom. We went over that. He drew, at first, Willie and the Chopper Bunch. That was his first paid work. Yep. That went for seven issues from May 75 to July 1976. Uh, Hanna-Barbera ordered, ordered Charlton to have Byrne tone down his artwork as they thought it looked too scary which, you gotta see it to really wonder what, what they thought was scary about an anthropomorphic car, but...
1: They were terrifying.
0: I mean, it you know, it's your character, you know what I mean? Like, what do you want him to do? Um, later, he would also co-create Doomsday Plus One. This was a post-apocalyptic book he co-created with Joe Gill. Uh, this ran for 12 issues from July 75 to May 1977. And as we said, that last unpublished issue ended up in... Uh, the Bullseye? The Bullseye, yeah, so... You know, it finally had its full run. Within six months, Byrne had Charlton's highest page rate. That was $50 a page for pencils, inks, and letters. These guys had to do their own lettering, which I find amazing, because so many artists I know are the worst letterers. <laughs> uh, just as a comparison, Marvel's page rate at the time was 35 bucks for a page just for pencils. So it's kind of a no-brainer if, you, if you're splitting the difference between the two. Um, Joe Gill, a uh, Charlton great, he returned to Charlton following Giordano's ouster from DC Editorial. And as far as I know, worked there up until the very end. uh, Until the doors closed. uh, Yeah, until they they stopped producing new material. Uh, His final creator credit of of anything was on a small press superhero comic called Ebony Warrior, issue number two, June, July 1993, for Ania Comics, an association of four black publishing houses, which were... Dark Zulu Lies, Incorporated, Africa Rising, Up Comics, and Afrocentric comic books. Uh, would really like to see that one. Yeah,
1: this was, this was around the time where... This is like that first speculatory boom of small press people. <laughs> it was like the 90s era Yeah. of uh, just this boom of just... Weird publishers that just show up on the on the stands.
0: Well, you know, it, there was sort of a wild west happening because you know Marvel was was near collapse, and you know yep. all these other companies, all these stores were taking a hit. So while the industry contracts, though, there's sort of this little room maybe for the underdog to come out. This is also New when course. the. Um... The uh, Montana Universe, right, or the Dakota Universe came out in Montana. That was stupid.
1: Yeah, the milestone. Yeah,
0: uh, the, which I know we, that was picked up by DC, but I think there was just sort of like these, you know, new voices were we were getting squeezed out of the cracks, and that was one of them. Except for Joe Gill, who'd been writing comics for you know 50 years at that Never. point. But anyway, <sighs> uh, also I've got to mention Mike Zeck. He was he was a uh, buddy of Cuddy's that he kind of brought in. He was born September 6, 1949 in Greenville, Pennsylvania. He began working for Charlton in 1974, illustrating the text stories and the uh, license titles, and he eventually moved on to the horror titles. And he lived in Derby, Connecticut during this time, and later he would go on to do work for DC, Marvel, and whatever else. And uh, Alex Toth, he didn't do a ton of work, but you don't get many bigger names in comics than Alex Toth. He did do some work. He was born June 25, 1928 in New York City, and he died May 27th. 2006 in burbank california uh the first work he did was actually for sal gentile uh it was a painted cover for real west magazine that was april 1973 must have been his last week right (laughs) i mean you know uh wildman took over you know from i understand in 72 so this probably was commissioned and so anyway um it depicted bill cody and his girlfriend lillian smith And Toth applied so much colored ink, or Toth, to this artboard that it warped and cracked. And he fixed this by applying two more strategic cracks, making it look like a weathered old picture, which was pretty clever. Absolutely. Uh, Toth also did the final question story for Charlton Bullseye, the fanzine number five. Uh, Plus he did the cover for a really low page rate, but he really just wanted to draw uh, the question because, you know, it was a Ditko classic he drew, inked with a brush, and led it a romance story called The Loveliest of All for Wildman, and he also drew and inked a five-page story called Bookworm, which was written by Nick Cuddy, but there was some dispute between Wildman and and Toth, so Toth returned the script and never submitted the story, and presumably it was assigned to some other boardsman, in-house artists, or something. Toth said it was published, his version was published later, but I don't know. I don't know where, so... Yeah.
1: Yeah, sticking with uh, Wildman here. He was a he was a very forward thinking editor and a, a, a very uh, a tireless promoter of uh, the Charlton brand. He would uh, go to distrib- distributor conferences around the country, and while in these uh, you know disparate towns, he would visit hospitals and schools for uh, comic book
0: giveaways. I, mean, had, I, just, I just want to point out too, like he went to these conferences before that. No, they never went to the conferences. No. no one went to these conferences. They ignored them because they were they were their own distributors for the most of the yeah. you know the East Coast. So I think they didn't even bother.
1: They didn't need to, or, yeah. or they didn't think they needed to. Yeah. Um, he had the idea to print the bullseye logo on Cotton's and uh, Charlton logos with uh, pictures of Popeye on the sides of their trucks. Maybe do a little bit of branding.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's yeah. it's small little things, but this is they weren't doing it until he showed up. You know the obvious and, things.
1: And it shows that he's got a he's. Not only is he really into the comics end of this, he's also got a, a pretty decent mind for the business, or just business in general.
0: And marketing. I mean, he is an ad yeah. man. He was an ad man at heart, you know, to begin with. So I think he, sure. he brought a lot of that to, to bear on the uh, on Charlton.
1: you got to wonder how itchy he got just waiting to put some of these things into place. Like, <laughs> yeah, really. why are we doing this so backwards? <laughs> now, uh, he created a line of black and white comics based on television shows aimed at uh, older readers. And, uh, you know, Wildman had an in from his ad agency days, like we just mentioned. Uh, a lot of the art was uh, from Neil Adams' studio, Continuity Associates. We got some stories here. We got some series. We got David Cassidy, which was a spinoff from the Partridge Family TV show. Ran 14 issues, February 1972 to September 1973. The Six Million Dollar Man went seven issues, July 1976 to August 1977. Emergency, with, which was a TV show about a, an emergency
0: room.
2: Yeah.
1: It was uh, four issues, July 1976 to January 77.
0: Which I think actually meant it lasted longer than the show. I'm not sure, but... It might have, right? (laughs) Uh,
1: The Bionic Woman, which was a spinoff of The Six Million Dollar Man, right? Yes. Yeah. That ran five issues. And that was October 77 to June 78. And also Space 1999, which ran seven issues, November 75 to November 76. The uh, first issue of that was written by Dick Giordano and penciled by Neil Adams himself. Uh, Santangelo Jr. wanted some of the original artwork for a conference or a promotion of some so- some kind, <laughs> and Adams goes, "Yeah, you can have it. Give me two hundred dollars."
0: I mean, this this was the time, though, that he was also probably gearing up for his fight against you know Warner Brothers for for uh, his art yeah, the, for and Seagull. Remember, he, he also fought yeah. for Seagull. One day we'll talk about Neil Adams. You'll learn all about it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, San <laughs> Angel said, eh, screw off. <laughs> and had <laughs> Wildman replace him for the rest of the run.
0: That was it. It wasn't worth the headache.
1: <laughs> no, there's more than one way to scare it <laughs> out. Uh, now, this might be worth an aside. You know, the policy at Charlton was that all original artwork was owned by them. Uh, so not the artist, Even freelance work. And this was this was getting to be a hot topic at the time. Uh, they would throw artwork on the floor on snowy and rainy days just to sop up the mess. Mm-hmm. And they would send it through the chipper periodically to send to the bulk recycler when the price for that kind of uh, recyclable was up.
0: Yeah, they would. They would. They would. They would wait for the you know paper price <laughs> would, to go up. I they, mean, they would use the yellow sheet. <laughs> I mean, the you know they the total like you know. Dismissiveness of of this original artwork is just unbelievable. You know, it's like it I'm wasn't i, I it Wasn't even art to that. I would, I, I, would them. I would almost yeah. expect Sant'Angelo to blow his nose on one if he could. You know, like <laughs> if could could could. Put, put it in the bathroom. This is your toilet paper. Whatever they could do with it. But I assume in the, in that story, Neil Adams had to have somehow retrieved his artwork. Obviously, otherwise, this yeah. why would this arrangement have even come up?
1: And this is where we heard stories of, like, uh, some staffers going in and trying to rescue people. Oh, yeah. To rescue
0: well, if you remember, you know, we used that uh, that comic book artist issue as, as a source. Uh, mm. And, you know, again, we'll, we'll mention this in the show notes, the exact issue and everything. But uh, there's there's stuff that Cuddy rescued from the garbage, yep. you know, like like I have a couple of Ditko panels here or like a picture of E-Man here. And that's it, you know what I mean? That's really all that's left from, from all that original artwork.
1: It, it's it's so weird because really like it, we didn't have really a an eye towards history then uh, even like a, a, one of the things I follow is is professional wrestling mm. and a lot of the uh, a lot of the television from then the the the, the promotions had one videotape and yeah. they tape over it every week so you lost everything unless you know somebody somehow rescued it from the television uh, showing of it. So it's a uh, so it's weird how spotty everything kind of was. We we didn't really have that collector mindset.
0: It's that... true. I but well, I mean, but no. There's 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 two things at play here, though. There there's, you know, a side that might want to preserve the history of these things, you know, whether it be mm. television or whatever it is, and then there's the realities of space, sure. you know, and uh, how we can really hold on to it. Now the thing. You know, in my job, I, as I, I I've mentioned before, I work in book publishing. The way we maintain the space in our office is by sending everyone back everything they send to us. You yeah. know, it becomes your garbage. You know, you, your <laughs> you problem exactly. <laughs> if you you want to you want to throw it out, you want to you want to wear it on your head, you do whatever you want with it, but we don't want it. We we have nothing to do with it. So, but uh, the, to me, that's you know the way the the best way to deal with it, and and that way you're not accused of holding anyone's. Uh, original yeah. work, yeah, but I—I I, I think it just shows that how much you know Charlton. They didn't even care about it that much. They didn't even want to have to to, <laughs> to pay a guy you know to do a half day's work to to label, you know, pay the postage Rates, on, yep. on on these yeah to these things to send artwork back. They'd rather just throw it in the chipper and uh, you know dump it and, and make five bucks a, a, for a ton or whatever.
1: Yep. <laughs> now uh, Wildman, he met with uh, an outfit in San Antonio that did uh, plate engraving, that, that was able to do it cheaper than their in-house, which was also unionized operation. And uh, over the, over time, gradually moved all plate engraving there, including not only the comic stuff but the music magazine division as well.
0: Yeah, I think actually the music went first because that that was where they were actually making profit. Yeah. So that's what yeah, it mattered. It wasn't
1: and lost later. <laughs> and I, and,
0: I, and I, I bet they couldn't just grab all the work from there unionized engraving but to be honest i'm not positive that the ones in san antonio weren't unionized uh-huh. but whatever it was they were able to do the work cheaper so they did so yeah why not yeah
1: um got the uh, got the old man to update the printing press we're not really sure what extent but uh yeah. <laughs> hopefully it was better than breakfast
0: yes yeah,
1: <laughs> and despite all of these cost-cutting and potential growth uh
0: inspiring measures Charlton stopped producing all new material in 1976 and turned to only doing reprints. Crazy. uh, Which is, you know, unbelievable. It seems like things are really building into a crescendo and things are about to take off and it doesn't happen. And, you know, the the comic industry at this time wasn't in dire straits really at all. I mean, you know, uh, DC would have an implosion the next year, but it, it was really sort of their own doing uh so it's 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 sad that it really just it seems like the lights just turned off right here and that was it all these all this potential all this work that we're going to hear more about later that it did surface in some ways but uh it's just that this is this is pretty much what we're talking about here the end of charlton as we know it as a publishing house we'll say Mm -hmm. uh although not totally there's more to it so nick nick cuddy left in 76 and he recommended his buddy Bill Pearson for the job, the same guy that turned down uh, Moonchild, <laughs> Moonchild for Witsend, uh, later on gave him a job. And they're still friends now, I think they still work together, so you still see them bopping around. Uh, in 1977 and 1978, through an imprint uh, Wildman thought up called Modern Comics, Charlton reprinted many of their action hero stories and released them in these three packs for department stores. You know, this was a pretty smart idea. You know, he, Modern Comics, to him, was a marketing branch so that they wouldn't have to worry about distribution. They just got to send the things to the stores, and then, you know, they'll sit there and, and you know, they'll move when they do, or they'd be given away as promotions, you know, buy such and such and get some comics for free. Kind of opened up many more retail avenues that were hadn't been pursued at the time. Um, I, 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 you know, when I was a kid, you could get comics in a lot of supermarkets, and uh, it seems like this was really the beginning of that, uh, right here in 77. So, you know, he, there was still some something going on, and this also drew the eyes of a whole new generation of readers to these heroes, uh, including a fellow by the name of Dan Reed. He was a fan-turned-artist whose work was rejected by both Marvel and DC, but he visited the Charlton offices in 1980 and he met with Wildman and Pearson, and uh, they I think they pretty much took him on under their wing right, right on the spot. Uh, partly because of his price, as we'll get into in a minute, <laughs> uh, he wanted to bring back the action heroes, and they—they they, he was told there was no budget for them or any new content. They said we're not making any new books, and Charlton was only doing 20 titles at this point, almost all exclusively reprinted material. Some inventory stories that had not been printed before found their way in, but it was—it you know nothing new was being produced. It was all yeah. stuff that was lying around. But Dan Reed went the one better. He offered to do the work for free. And, you know, that's an offer. (laughs) It's hard to to take, you know, put away. So uh, we said take two of Charlton Bullseye. This ran for 10 issues in June 1981 to December 1982. This was really a crazy book. It was a showcase book, kind of an anthology. But every issue seemed to have a totally different theme. You know, there were superheroes, and then some issues were horror, and some issues were even funny animal stories. I was like anything goes and this featured the word of reed along with benjamin smith al val arn Saba or Saba, and bill black and i just have to mention this is the first place that a comic called neil the horse by arn Saba appeared and i loved that comic when i was a kid i never saw the charlton bullseye but that was independently published by Seba uh mm. through the mid-80s so i remember it that's all that's all i have to say <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I've missed that one. I, I, I've heard of it. I just never, uh, I couldn't pick it out. Of it's, so,
0: up. it's sort of, it's a cute comic, yeah. It's nothing Nothing mm. to uh, go crazy tracking down, but it's definitely cute and really well rendered, like really tight. So if you, mm. if, if you see look, it in the wild, give it a peek.
1: To look that up, yeah. Um, now, uh, hun, one last stop for these Charlton heroes here is AC Comics. This is AmeriComics. Uh, Charlton I was canceled after 10 issues. Had 250 unpublished pages left in the pipe. Now, uh, Bill Black, who was working on The Bullseye, he had his own publishing venture from uh, the early 70s called Paragon Publications. He wished to expand to full-color publishing, and so AC Comics was born. He licensed not only the unpublished 250 pages, but also the rights to the action hero characters for the year 1983. He had AmeriComics Special Number no. 1 and AmeriCom- AmeriComics Number no. 3. They were both published in August 83. That featured a lot of uh, the unpublished Bullseye work. The uh, action heroes, the Beetle, uh, Blue Beetle, uh, Captain Adam, Nightshade the Question, they, he put them all together, you know, because you're only publishing one book, you might yeah. have to put all the heroes Here
0: together. we go, get a bang for <laughs> your buck, here, we, here it is.
1: And uh, that was called The Sentinels of Justice. And uh, the characters were eventually sold to DC Comics. Uh, rumor has it that Paul Levitz purchased them as a gift for uh, Dick Giordano, who had uh, returned to DC in 1980 and uh, became vice president in 1983.
0: Yeah, I imagine we'll develop that uh, thought at another time when we talk yes. about it. either Giordano Levitz, or who knows uh, that that period in DC's history. But so that's it. Uh, they were, you know, bought by DC, where many of those characters remain to this day, and we're going to talk about that later on. But um, George Wildman quit in 1985. He decided that you know there's no point in keeping this dying ship floating and T.C. Ford was h- hired as an editor. He was born February 9th, 1964 in Connecticut. This is the last editor-in-chief of Charlton publishing. I have a feeling at this point he was doing uh, there was no more mu- music and comic side either. Maybe I'm wrong yeah. but I have a feeling editorially they had to be under the same purview umbrella, because yeah, yeah you, you, couldn't, you couldn't support two salaries on what was going on. Uh, he did try one more time a last-ditch new comics work with the Charlton Bullseye special in 85, but that's exactly when Charlton Comics officially ended. They stopped publishing anything at all in 1985, and Charlton Publishing would go out of business totally in 1992. Um, the building that was once Charlton's offices and print works, it was raised in 1999, and now it is home to a strip mall that features a Suds laundromat. Yes. Is that a famous laundromat, Chris? I don't know. I don't know if I ever heard. No, of it. I
1: just looked it up on Google Maps. It's just a. It's
0: just <laughs> a that's the one you. <laughs> that's the one you would go to if you lived in Derby, right? You'd be like, "I'm going to Suds. I need, you know, <laughs> you know, it's good." So just just to wrap up, uh, George Wildman, who I really think is the star of this period of Charlton's yes. uh, history, uh, after leaving Charlton, he started illustrating children's books for Random House, and he received several National Cartoonist Society Society awards. He was invited by President Ronald Reagan to paint a wooden Easter egg for the 1983 White House Easter event, and the egg featuring Popeye is currently on display at the Smithsonian, along with a Popeye pop-up book that he produced in conjunction with the 1980 Robert Altman film Popeye, which starred... Robin Williams and, and Shelley Duvall, that was a musical that I actually saw yeah. in the theater and tickled me pink when I was, you know, five or six or whatever the hell I saw it. Um, you know, and that was sort of, a lot, a lot of his career was that, was drawing licensed properties very accurately, you know, looking yeah. exactly like they looked, uh, the Looney Tunes and uh, hanna Barbera characters. He also
1: really talented, yeah. Really, no really. No really. pun intended.
0: I guess, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wild, manly, talented. Yeah. Uh, he also did start an ad agency with his son, Carl, at some point in there. Uh, and he died on May 23rd, 2016, just a few months ago, which I Crazy. we didn't hear about it because we didn't really have Charlton on the radar. But it, it's uh, too bad that this just happened. And I, I also got to point out, he passed away in... Waterbury, Connecticut—the very mm. place he began. You know, the Simple man. Alive. This, you know, I don't know if you got this impression, too, Chris, but going through this story, I really found it to be a very Connecticut story. Yeah, you know, holy it's holy. So, it's sort of a, you know a hometown story about Connecticut and how like, uh, you know, the advantages and disadvantages they had by being sort of removed from new york but you know uh it's part of the tri-state the area, area. The state, yeah. um you know by having all their stuff under one building also i think this this probably contributed and then a lot of these guys said it to their demise because at first it was a great idea because you could cut your costs you know you kind of had control over everything but over Token time <laughs> yeah they, they couldn't they couldn't upgrade along with, yeah. with the rest of these uh commercial presses so what was really forward and uh you know, there's, there's a whole section I remember, and I, I had meant to put it in here, but it probably would have made it run too long. Where uh, in the interview that we read, George Weldman is describing a typical process of a comic book and how it goes through, you know, editorial, and they proofread, and they send it to the comics code, and it goes to the separator, goes to the engraver. Uh, it's a real laborious process that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, all that stuff is done by computer. You know, there's, there's no more human beings painting anything, or even a human being engraving anything. It's all just pop into a computer, and and these things pop out of a machine. Uh, that's the kind of a, that's the kind of innovation that Charlton couldn't make at the time because they were sort of locked into their presses in their standards so they
1: were way too invested in, yeah in their, in their ways
0: yeah as you imagine that it all costs a lot of money so it's <laughs> it's sort of you know what was their what made them unique and what made them profitable in the beginning sort of contributed there to their demise Undoing, yeah but of course that is not the end of the story is it chris no there were some survivors there from- were some survivors And uh, we're going to love telling you all about them right after this quick break that's going to feature a sound clip that I have not yet discovered. Oh, that one. Yes. (laughs) The one we've been waiting for.
2: (laughs) Hi, I'm Nick Cuddy, and I'm a filmmaker. In 1952, Popular Science printed an application to go to Mars. Even though I was only eight years old, I filled out that application. And to this day, I still am hoping to one day go to Mars. It's on my bucket list. That, I think, is really the most exciting thing a person could possibly do. Now, even if I'm not picked, I would like to help out as a movie maker. I am doing a science fiction movie right now called Mooney and the Spider Queen, which I wrote and produced. And uh, I've been doing science fiction and horror for years. So I would like to be able to advertise the Mars One expedition in my movies. I also write novels, and they're science fiction novels, and I could easily put uh, some sort of mention of Mars One in the novels. So again, any way you can utilize me, even as an artist, because I am an artist, any way you can utilize my talents, please do, because I believe very strongly in this project and I would like to advertise it for you. Thank you very much for listening, and I do hope you'll pick me for the expedition. Thank you. Welcome back.
1: I can't believe you picked that file for the uh, for the break.
0: I know, it's it's going to break the internet, that thing. That was amazing. I can't,
1: I can't <laughs> believe what we just heard. Uh, welcome back. We were talking about the uh, Charlton comics. Uh, we just finished with the, uh, the demise of Charlton and the... Uh, the movement of the licenses of the characters from Charlton to AC and eventually where they currently reside, DC. We got a list of survivors here. They are Blue Beetle, The Question, Captain Adam, Nightshade, Judo Master, Peacemaker, Ma- Peace and Peter, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt with an asterisk next to it. Yeah. Uh, following the uh, DC acquisition, they plan to release a weekly anthology series starring these characters. Uh, with the direct market still in its infancy, the comic shops were kind of hesitant to accept such a thing. Uh, they feared that, uh, you know, taking things off the shelf so quickly would, uh, would be something they wouldn't be able to keep up with. Yeah, uh, They didn't think they'd be able to sell the book. Uh, so plans were scrapped. Um, there are other reasons why it was scrapped, but it's all really contentious, he said, she said type stuff. Or he said, he said in this situation. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> now, uh, this was going to be called Blockbuster Weekly. Uh, then they changed the name to uh, ca- uh, to Comics Cavalcade uh, Weekly, which would protect the copyright, DC's copyright of Comics Cavalcade. They even did a, uh, Dave Gibbons did a mock-up cover of it. Yeah. Which was, it's interesting from the picture because it, it's got the Charlton Bullseye on it. Um, in the little corner box, it says the best of both worlds. It's it's, it's very interesting.
0: It looks, and I mean, it's got a really cool logo, a couple of cool logo yeah. treatments they came up with. They they did go a little, you know, a little bit into this idea for sure.
1: Yeah, they worked pretty, they went deep in here. Uh, with the, uh, the anthology was going to feature Blue Beetle, written by Steve Englehart, with art by Dave Ross, later on art by Chaz Trog. Uh, Peacemaker was going to be a Keith Giffen, Gary Martin uh, series, or, uh, segment. Uh, Peter Cannon was uh, Pete Morisi, the creator of Peter Cannon. Um, judo master, Frank McLaughlin, the the creator of Judo Master. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Adam was going to be uh, Paul Kupperberg and Paul Chadwick, who uh, we know from uh, Concrete, from Dark Horse. Uh, that was later changed to Paul Kupperberg and Jose Delbo. And I saw some pages of that and it looked really, really nice. Wow. Uh, there was a rumored Sarge Steel bit, which was going to be written by Max Allen Collins with uh, who did our uh, road to perdition and uh, wild dog um, also uh Trevor von Eden who was going to be, be the artist uh, we know him from Thriller and uh Dick Giadano was going to do inks uh, the magazine was also going to include a superman feature reprinting some of the newspaper
0: strips yeah uh, a little, little bit of butter with that bread you know <laughs> Yeah, and uh in, in
1: 1986 dc would actually go forward with their first weekly series uh, action comics weekly that ran for 42 weeks and actually did feature something that kind of looked like a superman <laughs> newspaper strip uh, it did yeah in the in the middle at the at the fold where the staples are would be a two-page superman story every issue um, now many of the charlton characters uh from the newly appointed dc earth four did, uh, they did find homes in this post-crisis on Infinite Earth landscape. Uh, the Blue Beetle joined the Justice League, the you know the Giffen DiMatteo's Wahaha
0: yep. League. That's right.
1: And he also received his own ongoing title, which we'll talk about briefly in a bit. Uh, Nightshade was uh, put into the Suicide Squad. Uh, Judo Master and his sidekick Tiger appeared in All Star Squadron. Uh Captain Adam received a new look and got his own ongo- ongoing title that ran for quite a while and uh also became the leader of Justice League Europe. Oh yeah, that's right. And uh the question got his own ongoing title as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, and of course, uh DC fans today or comics fans today, these a lot of these characters are still very familiar to you. You know, they we, they still come up and we will to get to that later on. So DC Charlton was uh Blue Beetle. That was a 24-issue 20, series from June 86 to May 1988. That was by Len Wein and Paris Collins. It this, featured
1: a long, long, long dangling plot thread that took like the, almost the entire series to, to actually pay
0: off. The entire series was just one, uh, <laughs> one story, basically. Uh, it was also in uh, Countdown to Infinite Crisis. He was eventually... Shot in the Head by Maxwell Lord. This was the Ted Cord version, I assume, right? Yes. Uh, He was in the 36-issue Post-Infinite Christ series starring now. He was Jaime Reyes. This was May uh, 2006 to 2009. This is, uh, I think, Eric's favorite iteration of Blue Beetle. Mm. Uh, He was in the 16-issue New 52 volume. That was November 11th of March 13th. Uh, Now he's got a brand new, the first issue, or actually the Rebirth issue just came out. Yeah. For a new version, which appears to be Ted Cord and Jaime Reyes team up. Uh, there was also that Blue Beetle. wasn't wasn't there also a Blue Beetle Convergence? Anyway, there was. Yes. We, we don't need to talk about Convergence. You know that's <laughs>
1: maybe that'll be a whole episode. That's unto its itself.
0: own fraught pro- thing, fraught with Gosh. problems. Uh, <laughs> and Charlton themselves inherited the character, who, who was originally published by the Fox Features Syndicate. So you know this blue beetle's been kind of passed around the block a little bit you know it was originally mm-hmm. a golden age for fox features then did silver and uh bronze for charlton i was in the modern age for dc comics and uh some people love the character you know he's also been featured on cartoons and sure. i know he was in brave and the bold and i think he was on that old jlu so these guys show up captain adam this is someone uh, a lot of us know very well he had a 57-issue ongoing series from 87 to September 1991, written by Carrie Bates and drawn by Pat Broderick. Uh, there's the story this time was Nathaniel Adam was offered the opportunity to take part in the Captain Adam experiment as a plea for treason charges, which, of course, he didn't really commit, and that occurred in 1968, uh, you know, watershed year for what we're talking about here, <laughs> and uh, Adam reawakens in 1987 and is an unwilling government agent. Is notable. Very for, nice series. I, I I I have never read this one, but I do know a lot about it. I know a lot about Captain Adam showing up in comics of the era. But you know, to mm-hmm. be honest, when I think of Captain Adam, I think of a guy that continually has to sacrifice himself by going nuclear in the stratosphere. <laughs> I can, like, like I got like three stories with it. I, Firestorm is the same way. It's like that's pretty much their Hail Mary, is <laughs> uh, to sacrifice themselves in a big atomic blaze. Um, notable for featuring one of the very few non-gaming penned death appearances. Which, from all reports, Neil got a bit precious about that one. He didn't quite like seeing his, uh, you know, his uh, death in yeah. in uh, Captain Adam. And he was almost the villain monarch from 1991's Armageddon 2001 until it was leaked. So they changed the villain in that one to Hawk from Hawk and Dove. That's another great story that we will definitely get to yes. or touch on more of that someday. He had another 12-issue ongoing series in New 52 from November 2011 to November 2012. There was a Captain Adam Armageddon was a nine-issue miniseries published under Wildstorm and from December 2005 to 2006. And yeah, he had an 11-issue ongoing series called Breach. called Breach, yeah, from March 2005 to January 2006. That was written by the current DC Editor-in-Chief, Bob Harris. And features for some reason the Earth Eight Captain Adam, who faced his fate by continually fixing Infinite Crisis.
1: Yeah, it was a very strange. I I was able to look into it as I usually do for you know a quarter each. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, didn't make it very far in this one. So it was uh, it was kind of one of those things that, it seemed like in in the mid two thousands, just like a whole bunch of weird stuff came out that uh, really didn't reach the level of fame or quality as the the little boom there was in the late 90s of just weird wacky books. Like,
0: there was definitely you know. a feeling in the early 2000s both for Marvel and DC of throwing any a lot of things at the wall yeah, to see if they absolutely. stick. And some of them did stick. Some of them were good. A lot a lot of them are Hard to remember, you know, the, not not really on the tip of your tongue when you think back to the time.
1: Because we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot more two thousand five stuff as we uh, continue here. <laughs> uh, we're gonna move into the question. Uh, in nineteen eighty seven, there was a series. Uh, it was a it was it was a thirty tw- six issue series initially. It was by Denny O'Neill with art by Dennis Cohen or Cowan. Uh, mm-hmm. Ran from February nineteen eighty seven to April nineteen ninety. Uh, it was given a Blackest Night issue 37 a couple decades later to uh, tie in with that event. Okay. Yeah, because they were doing that during Blackest Night. Like, I remember, yeah. Got an extra. Yeah.
0: It was a uh, weird stuff. I think Doom Patrols also had like a. Uh, Something
1: like that, yeah. yeah. It was very strange. Um, now, there was a pair of annuals and five quarterly specials as well after the series ended. Uh, the, the quarterlies were fall of 1990 to spring 1992. Uh, they modified the origin to show that Vic Sage was actually born Charles Victor Saz, but not Victor Zaz from Batman. Yeah. It was spelled uh, the S's and Z's are inverted. Um, and he grew up in an abusive Catholic orf- orphanage. Uh, grew into vigilantism after beating up a drug pusher who had given him LSD. Now, 2004-2005, <laughs> it's your miniseries, uh, November of '04 to April of '05. This was uh, by Rich Feach. With art by Tommy Lee Edwards uh, Changes the philosophy of the character From less objectivist To more warrior ethos Um, He uses Visionary drugs that, uh, that Allow him to walk in two worlds and uh superman approves of this drug use but uh wants him out (laughs) of town anyway wow because uh, he doesn't uh because he's you know he's violent he he kills people Mm. and superman doesn't want that on his watch and also uh vic sage had a crush on lois lane and superman didn't like that either
0: oh you can't do that don't mess with his woman
1: (laughs) uh now vic sage would eventually turn the uh you know turn the mantle over to uh renee montoya uh this is during uh the you know that that weekly series, 52, that followed Infinite Crisis. Um, uh, Vic Sage dies of lung cancer. And uh, Gotham, PD, Gotham City PD vet, Rene Montoya, takes up the mantle after being trained by Vic. Now the new 52, and uh, this is all stuff that I, I don't know a whole lot about.
0: Uh, yeah, and you know what, neither do I. It's really <laughs> it's hard to explain.
1: Now there are two Vic Sages. One's the question, part of the Trinity of Sin. The other is a government agent who helped form the Suicide Squad. Apparently, they're not the same guy. It's two different people, which just really tells you that they didn't... One hand didn't know what the other was doing yeah, at the start of this
0: thing. Def- that definitely seems to be the case. And they never really, you know, the question was even showed up in the title... Uh, Trinity of Sin that ran, I think, in two thousand fourteen or something. But because yeah, he was one of the Trinity, he, was, he he never did anything. No one ever. It was it was Pandora, <laughs> Phantom Stranger, and like, all I remember is is the question would be like, "I'm out of here," and just like walk away, like vanish <laughs> every time. Like no one knew what he was about. They'd, I think they might have had plans for him, but they, they never saw them to fruition. You know, mm-hmm. it only occurs to me now. Do you think maybe a lot of these comics were coming out in the two thousand four two thousand five area because they had to renew some copyrights possibly? That's a uh, very good idea. That's it's possible.
1: Cause, yeah, well, that, that's very because we're going to get to another weird one that gets revived in two thousand five six for, uh,
0: for sure. Yeah, it, it seems like there might have been something happening at that time that they had to do something, but it wouldn't have applied to the Atom though because that had actually run into the nineties. I don't know. Who knows though? Yeah. I'm not on their. Uh, I'm not a lawyer for them. But no. <laughs> um, also, there was a here's a short one. Peacemaker had a four issue miniseries from. January 88 to April 88. This was uh, written by Paul Kupperberg, drawn by Todd Smith. Probably a story intended for the comics cavalcade uh, that got repurposed, I'm guessing. Mm. Uh, Who knows? I could be wrong. Peter Cannon dot 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 Thunderbolt came out in a 12-issue series from September 92 to August 1993. This was done entirely by Michael T. Collins, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and he would receive a 10-issue series from publisher Dynamite Comics, from September 2012 to July 2013. Uh, This was Steve Darnell, Alex Ross, Jonathan Lau was the creative team on that. And the first issue included the unpublished Secret Origin Stories by Pete Morisi that was supposed to come out post-Crisis from DC. I think we actually talked about that a little bit last episode or some of Pete Morisi's plans uh, that didn't come to fruition. Uh, Then there was also Son of Vulcan. Uh, This Mm -hmm. character was used very sparingly by DC Comics, though it was one of Roy Thomas' favorites. Uh, made his first non-crisis DC appearance in DC Challenge number 9, which was a wacky throw-everything-at-the-wall affair as it is. Uh, he appeared in the George Perez-helmed War of the Gods miniseries, and he had a six-issue miniseries that ran from August 2005 to January 2006 that bore a little likeness to the original. Now, you know, i got to say, I'm, now I'm really thinking this is a copyright thing, because yeah. Peter Cannon didn't have his little revival in 2005, and then he had a Dynamite comic come out.
1: Yep. yeah, because so, uh, Maurice, yeah. He, he got the rights back. So,
0: I would say that, uh, yeah, this this is starting to look more like a, a rights a, a yeah. rights reason why all these things appeared in the uh, two thousand five.
1: Now uh, we can't mention Charlton without mentioning Watchmen. Uh, you know, it, it's been it's it's common knowledge among comic fans that the uh, the characters in Watchmen were based on the characters from Charlton.
0: Yeah, and th- the original uh, pitch was with the Charlton characters.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, you got uh, Peter Cannon, dot dot dot, Thunderbolt, who is Oz- <laughs> <laughs> Uh the question is Rorschach, Captain Adam, Dr. Manhattan, uh, Blue Beetle, this is the Ted Kord version, is Night Owl, now this one here, Nightshade as the Silk Spectre, Adam Moore kind of, he kind of contests that, he uh, he claims he just needed a female presence, and doesn't entirely uh, cite Nightshade as a uh, pure inspiration. He, uh, more looks at uh, Silk Spectre as a mix between the Phantom Lady and Black Canary more than anything. Yeah. Which you can see. I mean, it's the second generation, used the same name, it's...
0: But at the same time, Nightshade, for Charlton, was obviously just their female character, too. You know it, what I mean? Yeah. So, it's, <laughs> so <laughs> six and one, you know, they, they, I'd say that the, of all the characters you're mentioning, and you're going to mention one more obviously, this is the biggest divergence, but they're still similar enough that I'd say they sure, came from it, the same cloth. Classified.
1: Yeah, and then uh, the peacemaker was uh, the comedian. Uh, they uh, he also added some Nick Fury and Captain America for good measure. Now uh, the story was pitched to Dick Giordano after toying with using the Archie, the MLJ, Red Circle heroes, among other groups of no longer being published hero universes. He, they, they 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 knew what they were going to do with this one, so they wanted to make it so it was a, uh, you know, basically a dead property that they were reviving and then killing uh giordano dug it uh it was then they moved on to the charlton and giordano, giordano was cool with it but he realized that these new acquisitions were going to be useless yeah in the series
0: for example several of them were going to die <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah oh sorry
1: <laughs> now uh huh. more offered to substitute characters with the ones we all know and love now Um, Now, Moore was was exploring the idea of restructuring, not necessarily deconstructing the concept of superhero, which was uh, evident in things like Marvel Man, uh, or Miracle Man, if you will. Uh, Also Swamp Thing, Um, you know, there was an issue of Swamp Thing that featured the Justice League, but the reader never saw their faces and and they never were referred to by name. So, you know, it just could have been anything. You know, it's just a different view of heroes. now, Dave Gibbons was quoted as saying, and I don't know how reliable this is, I don't remember even looking at the Charlton characters when we were designing Watchmen. All I did was observe that, since the Charlton heroes were essentially archetypes, they pointed out the categories of archetypes we would focus on.
0: I, I just don't buy it. I don't, no. uh, you know. I mean, it's a, it, night owl and blue beetle. Like, what about the the owl ship? Is so much exactly like the blue it's the beetle? Sh- it's it's the bug. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly that, you know. And the question and the and Rorschach. Uh, Rorschach is just Rorschach is just the question with blotches on his face. I mean, it's the exact same, not exact same thing, but
1: close and Way way close enough.
0: You know, I I think I think I'm willing to say maybe Dave Gibbons doesn't remember uh, as well. I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> Yeah, one, Charlton definitely informed these Watchmen characters. I, I, I really don't think there could be a lot of doubt about it. No. Uh, there was also this other, this this actually came up in your blog recently, the LAW, The Law, Living Assault Weapons. This was a six-issue miniseries published by DC Comics in 1999 to 2000 featuring the Charlton characters, written by Bob Layton, uh, drawn by Dick Giordano, really? Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the JLA have gone missing due, due to some magic by the new villain, Avatar. So the charlton gang reunites or maybe unites for the first time since their uh americomics uh connection remember when they were together <laughs> well, some of them seem to
1: know each other and others they were like who are you
0: yeah they've they've <laughs> they've been down a long road at this point you know what i mean yeah. it's uh has <laughs> kind of been a crazy time uh they yeah they don't see they, they seem to be uh, confused about what's going on and we learn that avatar is and was or was judo Master's sidekick tiger who, as you recall, was actually appeared in uh, All-Star Squadron in the 80s. -hmm. Uh, The JLA are saved by the Sentinels of Justice, uh, which was their name under AmeriComics. They disband, and the story is never heard from again, and I've never heard of it until (laughs) uh, Chris reviewed it on his his blog uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, Blue Beetle actually retires for a while after this, which, as far as we know, is never mentioned elsewhere, and he obviously did appear again, so he couldn't have retired uh, completely. And then there's The Multiversity, which was a series by uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely that came out last year or maybe two years ago now. No, it was last year. Um, no, it was two years ago. I'm sorry. I think it was 14, yeah. 2014 into 2015. Four. Yeah. Anyway, in uh, one of the issues, I think it was the third issue, maybe the fourth, uh, that was The Multiversity colon Pax Americana, which took place on Earth 4. Uh, Morrison took on a very Alan Moore like style of crafting this story. It's actually told in reverse and it's it's very much the connection it's about the connection between the Charlton characters and Watchmen using the Charlton characters but sort of embodying the Watchmen Attitude.
1: Really and nodding.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And yeah, exactly. You you really have to know about what we're talking about here in order to really get the full impact of that story. Yeah. Uh in the story, it's a pretty good issue actually. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. f- Frank Quitely is enough as far as I'm concerned to crack a comic open, but this one is is pretty cleverly done and it's theorized that uh uh the assassinated president Harley, right?
1: Yeah, that was Harley was shot.
0: Yeah, and it, and and was sta- it was a stand-in for Peter Cannon Thunderbolt and thereby Osmond Diaz, who DC no longer has the rights to. So it was sort of that was being played with in there.
1: Yeah, because you don't see his face.
0: Yeah, so it's uh it's it's but it's I really felt like they were playing with that, you know, not knowing no, oh, what sure. I know about the licensing. There's he's sort of having fun with it because he could have left them out totally, but he I think mm-hmm. they he knew something. Uh, and is killed by Peacemaker in an inversion of what co- occurred in Watchmen. You know, instead of it going the other way around, Peacemaker ends up doing the assassinating. Uh, there's a Yellow Jacket case discussed throughout the issue, probably a callback to that first publication from 1944 that seems just like something Grant Morrison would do. Mm-hmm. And the question is written much more just like the Rorschach or Mr. Mr. A. vein, totally objectivist, which is not really how the Rorschach, how the question was written Initially, it was sort of going down that road, but uh, he wasn't a... He was governed. It was Yeah, uh, but this, this time he's, he's totally, you know, black or white, A or not A type guy. I uh, won't say I'm a dying, dying supervillain, goes off on an objectivist rant, just like an issue of Mr. A, if you ever saw any of those comics, <laughs> and proceeds to film and photograph the criminal's death via his cell phone. He really is kind of a dick the whole time, and that's uh, an interesting take on him. Captain Atom, or Captain Atom... Has mm-hmm. glowing blue skin and the same kind of marking on his forehead as Dr. Manhattan, so it's like just Dr. That's Manhattan. So cool with the dot. Yeah, the hydrogen atom, so he's just mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, Dr. Manhattan with a new name as far as I'm concerned. And the blue beetle here is Ted Kord, but he wears D- Dan Garrett's costume. So it sort of brings it all together. And, uh, you know, that kind of brings us up to current, but there's still even more Charlton you can mm-hmm. get your hands on today, folks, right now you can get a fanzine called Charlton Spotlight that began in 2000. It has eight issues to date. This is published by Michael Ambrose, who is a uh, prolific contributor to to uh, Tomorrow's Publications, which Chris and I have already said invaluable for uh, comics history. You, you know. Uh if, you, if you're interested in that, you go to charltonspotlight.net, and I will put the link in the show notes and the links to all these things that we're talking about. Charlton Arrow is another... Um, I guess called Fanzine. This launched in 2014. This is new stories, but featuring the unclaimed Charlton characters, the leftovers, who I guess would have to be Yang. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe but Yang. Yeah. But over, over so many years, there are characters that are just sort of like kicked to the side, sort of sitting around. Nobody's using them. So the, uh, Charlton Arrow uses those. I think that is. They were,
1: they were this close to having Son of
0: Vulcan back. <laughs> exactly. If they hadn't done that damn miniseries. Um. Yeah, so yeah, that one's also pretty infrequent. Then there's a brand new thing, or pretty new, a couple of years old, Charlton Neo. That's also published by Mort Todd's Comic Fix, as well as Charlton Arrow. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, this is new stories with characters... It's new stories and characters, but by past Charlton creators, which include Paul Kupperberg, John Byrne, I think Denny O'Neill contributed. Uh, I don't really... I'd really would have to go... Maybe Steve Skates did one, but...
1: Maybe. They're getting some and pretty
0: high profile names for it. you know
1: Byrne he at least did a pin up of a Doomsday Plus
0: One. Yeah, he did. He he's, he's done that much artwork. I, I also don't think these guys have had a ton of issues yet either. No, uh, no. last I heard they were trying to get diamond distribution. Uh I'm not really sure where it's at. If you want to find out, you go to if you want to find out about Charlton Arrow or Charlton Neo, you can go to Todd dot com. That's M O R T T O D D dot and of course, we mentioned it last time as well as Charlton Neo, but Charlton Comics the Movie, uh, that's a documentary that's forthcoming. If you want any information about that, you go to charlton com. But, you know, I think that's it. I think, I think we've right. said everything that we can say about Charlton. There is more that you could learn about it, but for example, we hinted at there being a bowling alley, but. We just can't fit... It. I mean, for, you know, I'm sure if we wanted to, we could do just uh, an entire two- or multi-part episode on the other side, the magazine side of things, which I'm, oh, yeah. which I'm sure had its own editorial ups and downs and, you know, and met Ozzy Osbourne and whatever else and, you know, all kinds of stuff, but we, that's not what this is about. This is Weird Comics History, and if you want to contact Weird Comics History with uh, any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can get at us... At Weird Comics History at Gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie.
1: And I'm at Ace Comics.
0: And you can find Chris and I. We contribute to the website, Weird I do reviews. Chris does reviews, and if we ever find time, we will write other things as well. <laughs> but you should you should always check out every single day. Chris's personal blog at Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. You got those Law, the LAW reviews up there for mm-hmm. Charlton, right? And uh, always a DC Comics-related thing every day, but usually something from the uh, obscurest recesses of the dollar bin, or the quarter bin even, you know? <laughs>
1: yes, I try.
0: If, if you could find a nickel bin, you'd go there too, I'm sure. <laughs> oh,
1: certainly.
0: Whatever they got. <laughs> uh, but it, it's really great. You should really check it out. And uh, I think that's all we got for them this week. What do you think, Chris?
1: I'm just happy I didn't say Charleston.
0: Yeah, the whole time. <laughs> you know, that's something you wrote in the was, beginning. How many times will Chris uh, say Charleston? And thank goodness, zero. I don't think you said it, it one zero. time.
1: Uh, and if we're wrong, let us know.
0: Yeah, if you counted it, if you if you, if you give us the timestamp, though, you know, I'm not taking any uh, yes. claims that aren't backed up by proof. <laughs> so uh, until next time, I hope everyone keeps it weird historically, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: See ya. Microphone check, one, two, yeah. yo, check it. It's time I take a second to wreck it on record. Just for the record, yo, I'll let you know. After the rhyme, I get the hope. Gubba, booga, goo, goo, the beats from the bottom to the top. Uh. I spent half of my life watching my best friends flop. Uh. Putting out shit uh. that uh. don't hit. Been an ego trip, so now the hats don't uh. fit. But I don't give a, he- uh. a heck. It's time I take a pen and pop the bubble on your neck. And it's okay if you don't give me no respect. Cause you don't suck my okay. dick or sign my yeah. check. Uh. So please watch the way that you walk and you talk. Our brother's on the prowl from Brooklyn, New York. And you're on my puss if you think or you thought. I'm from the green and I was raised in the fort. So I don't care what another brother thinks.